The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. You're listening to Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. better get healthy and help animals welcome to main street vegan with your host victoria moran my favorite movie of all time is the 1958 rosalind russell classic auntie mame now in it mame famously tells her young nephew life is a banquet and most poor suckers are starving to death Life is supposed to be a banquet, and when it becomes a vegan banquet, it gets so much better for everybody. I'm Victoria Moran, your host for this program. We have a new Facebook group that you are oh so invited to join. It's called Main Street Vegan Podcast Listeners. So do join us there, and otherwise you can find us on all social media, at least all that I know of, at Main Street Vegan. So today we are talking movies, <laughs> documentaries to be precise. After the break, we're going to be looking at this fascinating but controversial topic of electromagnetic field radiation with the director of a new film, Generation Zapped. And right now, it is my pleasure to bring back for a second appearance German filmmaker, Mark Pierschel. I hope I said that right. He can correct me. Whose brand new work is The End of Meat. This documentary continues what he started in a previous film, Live and Let Live, which explored veganism. You know him for his other films as well, Edge, about the straight edge subculture in the U.S., and 184 about the Icelandic whale hunt. The End of Meat is just about to break onto the scene and be fabulous. It's going to premiere in New York, L.A., and Toronto in the next couple of weeks. You can learn about those showings on social media at The End of Meat and mark your calendars for September 4th when The End of Meat releases on iTunes. Welcome, Mark. Well, thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. It's it's thrilling. I just love that you have done all these films and they're all superb and thought-provoking and stimulating. And, you know, sometimes I think if I could ever retire, I would just watch documentaries 
all day long. Well, good ones anyway. So tell us, what is The End of Meat about? So The End of Meat um, is basically the question, what would happen if we stopped eating meat? So um, I'm looking at this at a global perspective. What would happen to us? What would happen to the environment? And what would happen to the animals? And it's a documentary um, that I've worked on for three years. And it premiered last year in Germany. It was released in German theaters. And now I'm really excited. It's um, going to be released in North America. Very exciting. <laughs> I'm excited too. It's the August 28th. It'll be on the big screen in New York City. So yes. one of the questions that vegans hear a lot is, yeah, but what would happen to all the animals? <laughs> so is the end of meat all good? I know it's going to be really good. Are, is there a downside? Um, well, that's a question I get a lot in the Q&As after the film. And what people forget is that it's not going to happen overnight. The world's not going to turn vegan from one day to the other. So it's going to be a, a gradual process. And so the demand for meat is going to go down. And there's all these other wonderful plant-based products that are uh, coming out and lots of alternatives to people to switch from <clears throat> regular regular meat products to plant-based meat products. And then there's even cultured or clean meat products that are become, going to be coming out in the next year. So there's going to be all this variety so people don't have to eat meat anymore. And of course, there's lots of benefits to it, um, benefits to our own health, of course, um, and there's lots of benefits for the environment and, of course, for all the animals that don't have to be killed anymore. Mm. And I feel that I just asked that question wrong. How could there possibly be anything wrong with ending all that suffering? So if anybody was offended by how I asked the question, you know what? I was offended too. My apologies. So, Mark, what's the idea behind the film? Well, so the idea was um, to turn the perspective around because so far um, the documentaries have mostly looked at what is wrong. And, of course, there's a lot of uh, problems with eating meat, but I wanted to turn the perspective around and see what's possible. So what kind of perspective we would have if we would stop eating meat and other animal products. And so it's new perspective. People can look at that and see what's possible. So it hopefully um, changes their mind and they will rethink what they're eating or consuming. Well, we want to hear about some of the things that you found out. You know, sometimes people will say, well, if we stopped eating meat, the animals will take over the earth. And yet I'm thinking if we stopped eating meat, maybe we would all live so long that we would take over the earth in even more damaging ways than we already have. Uh, well, um, <clears throat> well, we look at different aspects in the film. You know, we look at the um, development in Germany, how veganism uh, rose there from just uh, like a something that, was, that wasn't even known a few years ago, where now it's it's pretty much in the mainstream and there's lots of cookbooks that came out and lots of brands and it's really, really easy to eat vegan now. And we see that same trend happening in other countries. And we're also looking at studies. We talked to a scientist from the Oxford Martin School for Food, Dr. Marco Springman, and he looked at this at a global perspective. So what would happen if we stopped eating meat or even if we turn all vegan and he says we could save 8 million lives by 2050 if we do that, and there could be savings in uh, healthcare-related uh, expenditure and avoided climate damages in 1.5 trillion U.S. dollars. So it's 
it's quite remarkable and quite um, astonishing numbers. And those are wonderful arguments for people who don't yet know that they care about animals and the environment and some of the other things that we are always trying to convince people about. So what was your favorite part? This is a really different way of looking at the topic. I think my favorite part was um, looking at ways of how we're going to interact and live together with animals in the future. And to do that, I visited lots of sanctuaries and I also visited Esther the Wonder Pig in Toronto, Canada. Bless her heart. Yeah, and it was really nice to meet her and, of course, her Esther's dad, Steve and Derek. And um, uh, when I visited at the first time, they were still living in their apartment in Toronto. And now I visited them in 2016 when they just moved to um, Happily Ever Esther, their sanctuary just outside of Toronto. And it was just really nice seeing um, this sort of community they created of humans living together with animals in in a peaceful way. And we saw this at other sanctuaries. And um, we also talked to Will Kimlicka and Sue Donaldson, the authors of the book Zoopolis, um, where they describe how a society or a community model of living together with animals could work on a political level. So it's all very, very exciting. And it was really um, thrilling to work on this film. And I'm really happy it's it's coming out in the U.S. and Canada now. Oh, I'm happy too. And I love how you're talking about living with animals because right now my apartment is being painted. So I'm kind of uh, locked into a back room with my dog and with Thunder the Pigeon, who's a, a oh. rescue pigeon. Uh, oh. My daughter is a wildlife rehabber, but this pigeon is blind in one eye and can't steer. So he has to be a companion pigeon. Oh. He is so cool. I have grown (laughs) so attached to this pigeon. I fear when my daughter comes back from touring as an aerialist, we're going to have a custody battle. And it's really (laughs) opening my eyes to, you know what? We could just have a whole different relationship. And I understand we're not going to breed billions of animals the the way it is now. We're going to have fewer of these animals. The wildlife will come back. Everything is going to work. And we can coexist. It's a beautiful, beautiful prospect. So what's it like making a film about the future? That seems a little tougher than making one about the present or the past. Yeah, that's uh, that's actually a good point. It wasn't that easy because we didn't have a clear concept of how the film would look like. So uh, we had an idea and we started filming. So the idea came together in the process of making the film which wasn't that easy because we got a lot of footage um, that we couldn't use and we had to find a way how the film would work for a general audience. So um, it took a while and we shot a total of 61 interviews in seven different countries. So the whole editing process took a long time, but I'm I'm quite happy how how it all turned out and how it all came together. Ah, that's wonderful. So... Do you think that there will be an end of meat? And maybe more important than that, do you think that people listening to this podcast will live to see it? <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a good question. I often get as well. But I, I mean, I can't. I don't have an exact date. I can tell you. So, um, but uh, the the signs are pretty pointing towards the end of meat because we don't have 
another choice basically there's the climate change is becoming more concrete um, everywhere and um, just the number of people there's going to be so many people in just a couple of years that we have to find alternatives how to feed these people and um, meat or animal products is just not um, a sustainable way of doing that so we'll be forced to look into plant-based alternatives and hopefully we will get there without a big um, yeah catastrophe or a big yes um, so how has the film been accepted in Germany? Yeah, it's been really good. Um, we uh, it got, got released into cinemas in uh, September 14th last year. And we had a total of 15,000 people who seen the film in cinemas. So we got a lot of um, positive feedback from critics as well as from, the, from our viewers on the screen. And it was released on DVD and VOD in Germany and Austria in um, March this year. That was oh. also very, very successful. So, oh, good for you. So, Thanks. I wonder sometimes as we come closer and closer to the end of meat, are we going to see something like people saw during prohibition in the US when alcohol was outlawed? So, there was all kinds of crime and underground, you know, trying to get the booze. And people are really addicted to meat. A lot of people, it's like, you know, don't take my meat or heavens forbid, don't take my cheese. And I know we have all these wonderful substitutes, but do you think there will be some holdouts? And I, I don't know. I just can't imagine it. There's a really funny film that came out. Uh, it was like a mockumentary called Carnage. Have you heard of that? No, I haven't. It's from the UK. Um and uh, it looks how this process would look like, what would happen, like in the like until meat is abolished or there's no longer any any more animal products to eat. And that's um, that's really interesting. And it's a really funny take on that. But there's also going to be um, lots of innovations, I think, from biotechnology. So we're going to see the products that we used to, like meat or cheese or milk or eggs, probably that we already know, but they're not going to be any different. But those products are made um, without the animals. So like, I, I'm sure you heard of cultured meat and clean meat, and that's sure. just um, taking off at the moment. And I think we're going to see uh, in the introduction in the market very soon. I think it's going to radically change how we view uh, meat as a product itself. And there's going to be other products that are going to follow, like milk or eggs or cheese. Oh, I, I completely agree with you. And I know some people talk about the, the yuck factor of the clean meats, that people will eat meat from a slaughtered animal <laughs> with all of the <laughs> bacterial contamination and all that that involves. And yet the idea of meat grown in a test tube, I guess some people are looking at, you know, with a little bit of trepidation. But I think it's just going to be a short learning curve and people who want to eat meat will eat that kind of meat. I'm I'm so excited about it. Yeah, definitely. I think um, like one of the benefits of the whole meat industry is that people don't really see how meat is made. It's like a big slaughterhouse with walls and there's factory farms with walls and you can see behind how this actually happens. And people don't want to see that. That's why they continue to eat meat. So are there any places on earth that you know of that are kind of a prototype of what the vegan world will look like? I mean, I know Israel has a very high vegan population. I'm wondering if it's high enough to give a sense of some of, of these uh, future possibilities. 
I think, yeah, Israel is around 5% of vegans. What's That was the last estimate I heard. But for the film, we also went to the first vegetarian city in India. It's Ooh. called... It's called Palitana, and um, there's this uh, population of Jain, Jain monks, and yes. yeah, and they have a, a very holy temple there. And around the temple, there's it's forbidden to eat any meat or um, yeah, slaughter animals, basically. So we went there and had a look how this came about and how how it works out for the city and all the people living there, which is which was really interesting. Is that northern or, or southern India? Uh, it's northern India. It's just uh, okay. just about Mumbai. Ah, well, I, yeah. I didn't know about that. How fascinating. Mm-hmm. So what about all the people that work in these industries? You know, I, I talk with a lot of clergy and people who are interested in maybe bringing a little bit more conversation about veganism into their religious or spiritual centers. But there's just so much concern about people and their jobs and their livelihood. How is that going to play out? Um, I think we're already, we've already, well, at least in Germany, we've already seen that process where um, the whole animal agriculture was just um, replaced by bigger um, operations, larger factory farms, bigger companies entering the market so that the small family-run farms have have died out or they had to look for something else to to um, farm. So I think in Germany over the last 20, 20 years, 80% of farms have died down. So it's just like the trend is to bigger farms and more animals. And we see that in other countries as well. So I don't think it's a big concern. And I see there's every now and then there's stories popping up of farmers that just switch to like farming veggies basically. And it works out for them. You know, the argument used to uh, that I would hear, Mark, years ago was, well, there's so much land that you can't do anything with except raise animals. And I think the environmental movement is helping people to see, wait a minute, just because there's land doesn't mean you have to do something to it. You know what I mean? That yeah, yeah, exactly. I know that just, argument. And, go ahead. Uh, yeah, I, I, always, I always think, well, well if you... If you have the land, then just let the animals be. Let them live on the land. You don't have to slaughter them or use them for anything, basically. You could just be renaturated. Or I love it. I love. I, I had a, a guest on this show who, who did a book about rewilding. And, mm-hmm. and I feel like we can kind of rewild our natures and maybe uh, <laughs> let nature rewild some too. So the film is The End of Meat. You find it at The End of Meat on social media, theendofmeat.com. New York premiere August 28th, LA August 30th, Toronto September 2nd. And for everybody all over North America or just U.S., September 4th, iTunes. No, it's uh, U.S. and Canada. Fantastic. So let's move just a little bit, Mark, into what it's like to be a filmmaker. I think people are so fascinated. I'm fascinated. Is it your whole life? Do you have a day job or are you a filmmaker, period, end of story? <laughs> no, I'm trying to be a filmmaker full time. But, um, <clears throat> well, it's not as romantic as it sounds because it's um, making the film is actually just a very short, uh, short part of it. Basically, when you're a filmmaker and you don't have a very big budget for this film, we only had a budget of around 80,000 euros, which is 
which is not a lot. So we had to try and make the most of it. And so most most work um, or the most stuff stuff that I do a lot is just working on a computer, you know, like getting the film out there. Um, Letting people know about the film, sending it to festivals, uh, organizing screenings, um, talking to the press, and now organizing the the premiere screenings in the U.S. So uh, it's not just um, being behind the camera and filming and editing. It's more like a office job. Uh, <laughs> you know, I think that's the nature of life. Because sometimes <laughs> people say to me, "Oh, it's so romantic to be an author." It's like, I'm an author? Oh, yeah, I do do that about 2% of the time, and the rest of it is, um, yeah, a lot of paperwork and technical yeah. work. I suppose that is the nature of everything. What yeah. advice would you give uh, another vegan who wants to make a first documentary? Well, I don't have a background in filmmaking. I'm actually, uh, I studied sociology at university and um, cultural sciences, so I didn't know anything about how to make a film. I just tried it myself. I just, uh, for my first film, I just rented two cameras, watched a few tutorial videos on how to shoot films and just basically watched a lot of documentaries and looked how other people did that. And then uh, with time, I know how to avoid certain mistakes and how to improve making films. So uh, it's, it's a constant learning process, but it's really fun. So you just should really try and go out there and start making films because it's really that easy. <laughs> That's a wonderful send-off for somebody. So I hope somebody's listening who's going to go make another wonderful vegan film. So your first film, I I'm interested in that, Edge. Is that still available? Because I don't know anything about Straight Edge because I kind of missed the whole punk thing. <laughs> and yet I'm fascinated by people who don't drink, don't smoke, don't do drugs, don't eat animal foods. It just seems like this wonderful kind of strength. So tell us how you got interested in that. Uh, well, it's, uh, well, yeah, Straight Edge is very uh, tied to, close together to the hardcore punk scene. So that's how I got into that because uh, I, I'm from that scene and that's how I turned vegan and got into activism. So I wanted to make a film about straight edge because there wasn't like a, a, a proper documentary about how this scene works and um, how it uh, evolved basically and what the main protagonists think about, um, you know, drinking or how, what kind of experience they have with drugs. And so we went to the States and traveled around for, uh, I think six weeks and talked to a lot of people. And that's, that's what edges. And I think, uh, it's still, yeah, you can still see it on Amazon in the U S. Mm -hmm. Well, I, a, I want to, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's my yeah, first I, film. It's my first film. So it's, um, I'm not too happy with it, but, um, yeah, it's still out there if you want to. Have uh, a look. <laughs> that's how I, my first book was actually a college thesis. I had a, fellowship and I could study anything anywhere except in North America. I had to cross an ocean or <laughs> travel far. And so I went to the UK to study vegans. And the paper that I wrote became my first book, Compassion, the Ultimate Ethic. And it went out of print 
after about five years, because this was 1985, there wasn't a lot of interest in, in veganism like there is now. But mm -hmm. the American Vegan Society picked it up and they still print it. And every now and then somebody will write to me or I'll see that somebody takes a picture of it and posts it on Instagram. And it's like, oh, my gosh, that was my college paper. And yet, <laughs> you know, these these first works come to have historic value. Yeah. And, you know, you can't have a second work without a first one. Yeah, for for my previous film, Live and a Live, we went to the Vegan Society archives in um, oh. in the UK, Ooh. and we actually we actually uh, saw uh, an original copy of the first first Veg News, the newsletter that Donald Watson produced. So wow. that was really that was really exciting to see vegan history uh, like in front of you. That's very exciting, and and <laughs> just you know when you think about these people and their courage to start this thing that we've all benefited from since, and hopefully some of us will be able to carry it to, to completion, to carry it to the end of meat, a wonderful yeah. state and a wonderful <laughs> documentary. Do you have another film in the works or in mind? Yeah, I'm actually working on another documentary about the first um sanctuary in germany uh, it's a cow sanctuary in the north of Germ germany and i'm following the two founders around for two years now and it's going to be like a very private intimate film about their personal story and also about the story of the animals that live on the sanctuary so it's going to be out probably in one or two years um it's still a lot of work to do but i'm really excited to uh, work on it well you are a busy guy and I think that's a really important film because so many people want to start a sanctuary. You know, I hear from so many people, I just got this little inheritance or I just, you know, came <laughs> into some money and I'm going to start a sanctuary. And everybody that I know who has a sanctuary says, wait, <laughs> it's yeah. um, more work than you could imagine and is, more yeah. satisfaction than you could ever imagine. And it's a huge responsibility when you take in animals and you have to provide and care for them. And uh, it's going to be tough financially if you don't have donors or have to work to finance the sanctuary. So, yeah, it's it's not that easy. <laughs> I'm sure it's not. Well, just in, in our last minute, do, do you find people who aren't vegan looking at your films in an interested way? Um, yeah, well, I'm trying to not be too pushy about the whole the whole agenda. So I'm trying to be very open-minded and present the idea in a way that is um, hopefully entertaining for people and something they can uh, relate to. So, and I've and I've got a lot of positive um, comments from viewers who were vegetarians or meat eaters who, who had seen the end of meat and that they said that it helped them or they now are rethinking what they're eating. Oh, wow. That's the point. The film is The End of Meat, at The End of Meat on social media. Watch it, see it, let it change you. Everybody, stay with us. We'll be right back. Experience the difference. 
Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. If you've been inspired by the programming on Unity Online Radio, we hope you will give your support so others may be inspired too. This online radio network depends on the support of listeners like you to continue operating and expand its outreach. Go to unityonlineradio.org and click on Donate today. Here's a Unity Mindful Moment with Eric Butterworth, taken from the live lecture, A Course in Practical Metaphysics. Emily Cady, in her Lessons in Truth, makes a statement which I think we need to kind of think about a little bit. She says, God is not a being with qualities or attributes, but he is the good itself coming into expression as life, love, power, wisdom, etc. He is the good itself coming into expression as life, love, power, and wisdom. In other words, and this again is, is shattering to some of us, God is not loving. Ah, oh, God is a loving God. God is not loving. Because the moment we talk about God as loving, we've got the anthropomorphic Michelangelo like God sitting up in a crowd somewhere with his heart beaming out and saying, oh, I love you all down there, see you so dearly, as long as you're good. But I'm not going to love you very much if you don't go to church and so forth. God is not loving. God is love. To find out more about Eric Butterworth, visit unity.org. Have you looked at Unity Magazine lately? It's been beautifully redesigned, and it's full of interesting in-depth articles and interviews from today's spiritual thought leaders. You'll find science, spirituality, and healing with a look at Eastern philosophies and completely new ways to interpret the Bible, plus the latest spiritual books and music. There's a little news from Unity Village, and some of your questions might be answered too. Get a free trial issue at unitymagazine.org. Would you like to show your support for Unity Online Radio? You can donate easily on your phone by texting the word VOICE to 50555 and donate $10 to support Unity Online Radio. It's easy to do, and your offering will help us keep inspirational and positive programming on the air. Remember, just text the word VOICE to 50555 and support your favorite shows on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Would you like to experience more peace and joy in your life through A Course in Miracles? Let Reverend Jennifer Hadley support you in discovering the powerful life lessons available through this unique spiritual thought system that teaches the way to love and peace is through forgiveness. Join Jennifer every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Central for A Course in Miracles, living the love, walking the talk, to experience the healing for yourself on Unity Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Call now with your question or comment. 816-251-3555. That's 816-251-3555. Welcome back to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. Welcome back to the Main Street Vegan program. I invite you to visit my website, MainStreetVegan.net, where this week the blog is Zero Waste Vegan by Cindy Thompson, who's a Main Street Vegan certified vegan lifestyle coach and educator. 
You know, I love aspirational people and aspirational ideas. I am not a zero-waste vegan, but Cindy's inspiration is helping me waste a little less. This is kind of how we all grow with one another's help. I am about to introduce to you the director of a film that changed me. And isn't that what we really look for in films, documentaries in particular? I saw this film. I started looking at my own life. I brought in a building biologist from a company called Elexana. I'm not advertising them. I'm just telling you he was good and I liked him. And I'm working to lower the levels of electromagnetic radiation in my home. So thank you <laughs> to our guest, Sabine El Gamayel, because she shows in her film that in less than a generation, the cell phone, the internet revolutionized every aspect of our lives, but are there invisible consequences to our health? Her film, Generation Zapped, investigates the dangers of daily exposure to wireless technologies, devastating effects from infertility to cancer, and suggests ways to reduce overexposure. And it's available now on DVD, on iTunes, and um, more to come. Welcome, Sabine. Thank you so much, Victoria, for having me on your show. Especially well, that I, you have a vegan nutrition show, and we're talking about EMS. So I was very, very moved and touched that you chose to have me on your show. Well, thank you so much, and I am so grateful that you're here because I want everybody to have a long, healthy life. And and vegans are doing so much good stuff for the world. <laughs> it's like let's have a long, healthy life. And you know, there's another thing too with vegans in particular, because a lot of us are into health, not everybody, some people, it's just about the animals or the planet, but a lot of us are really into health and a lot of non-vegans think we're supposed to be healthier than everybody else. And then people get sick, they get cancer, they get these problems and say, what did I do wrong? I think lots of times we get sick, not because we did something wrong, but because we're living in a very different world than people have prior to now. So what inspired you to look into this issue and make this film? Well, precisely what you just mentioned. I thought I was um, healthy. I had a very healthy lifestyle. I'm, uh, I raised my children on organic food, had my children at home, and tried to have the best healthy environment. And I was watching their screen time very closely and, and, and actually their, I should say, their, not only screen time, but the content of what they were watching when they were little. And as they grew up and a lot of children around them started having smartphones, particularly for graduation, when my son was graduating from sixth grade, I someone told me about cell phone radiation and I didn't really believe it until, I don't know, I started doing some research and I realized that our children were actually having devices that were um, radiation emitting devices. 
and I started becoming concerned about the source of their screen time. Where, what were they watching things on? Was it on an iPad, a phone, a, a computer, or a TV? Because all of those generate electromagnetic fields. But then when they're connected to Wi-Fi, it becomes a different story. Their proximity to the screen, whether they're holding in their hands or they're 5 feet away or 12 feet away, all of this uh, matters for children and adults, but especially for little bodies that are developing. So I started paying attention in my own life, and when I was talking about it to my children or my surrounding, people were not taking me seriously because at the time, the answer I was getting, and, and we're talking 2012 here, um, people were saying, well, it wouldn't be on the market if it wasn't safe. And in doing the research and talking to Dr. George Carlo, Actually, it's in, and it's in the documentary, no proper research were done prior to releasing those products into the market. So I felt I was a filmmaker, and it felt it was my, my social duty to make a film for public safety, especially for my children and, and their friends. That's how the whole idea started. Well, that's, I love these etiology stories, <laughs> how they, these things come about. Because if you actually read even the that thick manual <laughs> that comes with your phone, it really does tell you all these bizarre things like don't have it any closer than I think it's four inches, you know, from your head. Well, who does that? Well, actually, actually, it's like half, less than half an inch, and, and they actually, the FCC actually um, managed to declare the. Um, the part of the ear that's sticking out as an appendix to the body. So they're not even taking into account that half an inch that your ear is from your, um, you know, away from your head, which is very bizarre. Ah, well, I just, I hope everybody sees Generation Zapped and then they will get the information that you have gathered. And I also hope that in our conversation today, you can help people understand what it is, and I know it's complicated. Just electricity is complicated, especially for those of us who dropped out of physics at the semester. But can you just give us a layperson's view of what's going on and what are we talking about? Um, in making the documentary, I'm not from a medical background at all. I'm a filmmaker and a mom. And so um, it was very difficult for me to get my head around all the science that goes behind the, and, and all the research and talking to the, the, those scientists. And in making the film, it was very important to make it as simple as possible so everyone could understand it like 13 and 14 year old uh, teenagers can actually understand the science and behind the film. So one of the things that make it very easy, and I start the film that way, is we are electrical being. It's we have electrocardiograms because we are electrical beings. And if we are electrical beings, that means we're conductors. And so we are conductors of electricity. That's why we can get electrocuted when we step in water. So just understanding that makes people um, realize that things go through our bodies. We don't see radiation. We can't smell it. We can't hear it. We can't feel it, although some people are electrosensitive and they can feel it. Um, I am not electrosensitive. But just the fact that we're electrical beings um, 
is is enough for uh, to understand that our cells have electricity going through them. There's a whole mechanism, um, and I'm not going to get into too much details with <laughs> the stress protein that is affected by EMF. Those the EMFs affect the body on a cellular level because it uses frequencies, and it's a low, even low form, low um, EMF fields. So you mentioned some people who are electrosensitive. And I'm certainly aware of that. I was just watching a series on on Netflix called Afflicted, people who have these kind of mystery illnesses. One of these women um, had been diagnosed and believed herself to be electrosensitive. But just today, very interesting, on nutritionfacts.org, Dr. Michael Greger, whom I admire and respect very much, did a video about electrosensitivity and is it real? And he said that from 46 studies that have been done, it seems to be more of a psychosomatic thing. So I sent that to you and wanted you to uh, give your opinion of that. Um, I respect his work very much, and I like his website and follow some of his uh, nutritional guidelines. <laughs> so, um, yes, I looked at it, and you know, it's uh, electrosensitivity is very is and and chemical sensitivities have all sorts of symptoms, going from headaches to uh, skin rash to nausea, um, and can be very debilitating to some people. Now. Um, in his in his um, video, he says that the 46 studies that were done on electrosensitivity showed that it was a, a, a result of a placebo effect, and that the re- research that was done was not a, a double-blind uh, research. I happen to disagree with that because I spent four years making this film. I spent two years with a family that is actually featured in the film that is electrosensitive, and I I, I, I was incredibly amazed that um, I had forgotten to turn off my phone in um, during the shoot, and uh, the gentleman that featured Jamie, the photographer in my film, said, hey, you guys, someone has a cell phone on, you need to turn it off because already your equipment is making too much. And that was my phone. So it it was unbelievable that he he could actually feel that my phone was on because my bag was not too far from him. So that's like from personal experience. But I shot um, a number of experts. I went to the, I attended the Fifth Paris Appeal Congress in May 2015, and a number of experts in the field were present, including Igor Belyev, Leonard Hardell, who were part of the World Health Organization EMF research team. And they're the one who actually concluded that radiofrequencies was a class 2B carcinogenic to humans, which means that it's, a possibly, that it's possibly carcinogenic. And so at that conference, there were a number of um, experts there had done some research on electrosensitivity, including Dr. Professor uh, Dominique Belpom, who came who actually established some biomarkers to identify people with electrosensitivity. What he explained, and unfortunately he's not in the, in the film because of sound issues that we had with the interview, um, and he was able, through blood tests, identify 
some um, how how do you say that in English? I have the word coming to me in French. Carence. Some when you're missing something in your uh, in your blood, like some deficiencies um, that were common with people who had electrosensitivity. So uh, electrosensitivity, whether it's from EMF and RF exposure or chemicals, is is something that is very much of concern today. Scientists are very concerned about that today, and they're more research because there is some reality behind it. As a matter of fact, in Sweden, um, electrosensitivity is considered as a functional impairment. So the government actually gives people money. If you declare yourself being electrosensitive, you can actually receive some money from the government to shield your home. I mean, that's incredible. I don't think people, if it was a placebo effect, the government wouldn't be paying a massive amounts of money for their citizens to protect themselves. In France, um, I'm not sure if it's uh, fully operational yet, but there are a few people who receive worker comp for, because they're electrosensitive and they can't work in a, in a public environment, so they uh, give them disability grants. So I think there, if we consider that there is some um, uh, biological effects from exposure to radio frequencies or electromagnetic fields, such as, for instance, the blood-brain ba barrier um, issue, which when you put your phone to your head more than 20 minutes, the membrane that is protecting your brain from toxins is actually become, becomes permeable, allowing toxins to enter your brain. And that is actually, this, this technique is used in the medical field when they need to inject, um, have their patients receive uh, medicine straight to the brain, they actually expose the patient to radio frequencies. So if it's used in that way, and if there are impacts on the blood-brain barrier, why, it, it, for me, it fully explains electrosensitivity. Mm. We still don't know how to identify or treat, fully treat depression or Alzheimer's. Well, I think that chemical sensitivity or electrosensitivity is one of those where we're just only discovering that there are those symptoms. We don't have an explanation for it. And because I have to say it is such a controversial subject, people don't want to know what their Wi-Fi router at home is causing and how their use of technology is harming them. I have that with my film. It's very difficult. Uh, a lot of people see it and it changes their lives like it did yours and you, you actually uh, chose to, to treat your home. But other people are septics until they see the film which I love mm -hmm. because when septics see the film and make changes, then I know that they, they are applying the precautionary principle and they're choosing to protect themselves until science shows the impact or at least, or at least, at, at least until it becomes mainstream. Right. And it seems to me that if we're interested in health, we may as well be interested all the way. And some of the things that we're doing now that science has, has established as being the right thing to do, a lot of us were doing those things when science was saying, you don't have to worry about that. 
<laughs> I mean, I'm very glad that I ate blueberries in the 1980s <laughs> and that I didn't wait <laughs> until um, the science was, was backing it up. Now, I heard 30 years ago about electromagnetic field radiation, but we didn't have nearly as much of it. And in your wonderful film, Generation Zapped, there was one of the scientists, and you can name him in, in a minute, who, who just said a sentence that blew me away. He said, do you want to know how much more radiation you're exposed to now than 10 years ago? And I was expecting him to say, yeah, twice as much, three times as much. He said, a quintillion. And if I'm quoting right, I think he said that's 18 with six zeros after it. That's a lot of zeros. Yes, that's Dr. Dr. Uh, Ole uh, Johansson. And uh, that quote has been very controversial because some physicists say, well, you can't really measure radiation, and others say, and, and uh, Ole, and, uh, again, has a very complex uh, uh, mathematical formula in which he proves that this is the case because obviously no machine can actually measure it that way unless you're in a, you know, next, <laughs> I guess, a nuclear power, uh, power plant with all the radiation levels and everything. But, you know, in our, in our normal um, cities, it's difficult to measure. So it comes from his, his formula. But if you think about it, not only we are adding phones, but there's smart meters, there's iPads, there's all the Fitbits, all the wearable um, uh, devices that are w worn on the body, all the so over electricity that we have in our homes because, for instance, that that's another issue that I don't speak about in the film, but it, our nighttime environment really needs to be pristine and free from radio frequency emissions and EMF. So sometimes if you have a, a lamp that doesn't have a corded shield um, by your bedside, the electrical force is still em emanating from the actual cord, so it's best to unplug it or get a shielded cord so the electric force doesn't, you know, it's like a hose, it, it builds up and then when you turn on the light it shoots so much, but there's the, the, the electricity is, is still in the cord, so to say. Um, I see. And, yeah, so, so that's well, the, we really need to, this is the acclimation and this is how people can protect themselves in their home is be first becoming aware of how, how many devices or utilities they have that connects wirelessly. Anything that is wireless is a communication. It goes to something to give the information to something, and then it reads it back. So there is radiation traveling throughout the house. So give us some tips, Sabine. Let's just start with the phone. Short of giving up the phone, what can we do to make it less potentially dangerous? Not carry it in the body. That's like the first thing. You know, I see young women, uh, teenagers putting their phones in their bra when they jog. And the, the, the cancer rate in young women is on the rise and it has, I mean, People need to see the movie to see the, to 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 see that part of the film that talks about that. But um, not carrying it on the body is really the first thing that people need to do. Then there's no reason to use it as an alarm clock. A, a cell phone should not be in a bedroom at all. If people want to use it as an alarm clock, they should definitely put it on airplane mode. 
Some electrosensitive people argue that they can still, they are still affected by the battery that is on the phone that is still generates very, very low um, EMF electromagnetic fields. But those are not radio frequencies that carry um, carry information. So no, don't use the phone as uh, an alarm clock by your bedside or your iPad. Um, don't put it on your body. If, for example, you're stuck, always use a headset, uh, and ideally an aired tubed wear, uh, headset that you can find on Amazon because it's only the sound of um, frequency that care goes to the ear and not the electricity that is carrying through the wire to your ear. Um, but And if you're stuck and you don't have a headset, speaker phone, and if you can't have a public conversation, people um, can do the one-minute rule, which I very rarely but sometimes have to apply is I, I keep switching my phone from one ear to the other, like every less than a minute, so that the, I don't allow the blood-brain barrier to become permeable. That's very, very, very important. And at work, you don't need to have your phone in your pocket. You can easily put your phone on your desktop, use your apps on your hardwired computer, ideally rather than on your phone. And that, if, if you taken to the habit of only doing that, like my WhatsApp app, because I work a lot in Europe, or what my iMessage is off of my hardwired computer. I mostly use it that way. So what about the computer situation? So we've all got all this Wi-Fi. Is there a way to, um, to deal better and more healthfully with that? Well, ideally, you need to be hardwired. That's the ideal world. The second best thing is to get those um, those power line um, where the uh, information is carried from your router through the electrical wiring of your house to your um, to a plug. So you actually plug it in. You need to see the film to see that. And that's what I use. Those generate EMF, but they significantly reduce your radio frequency um, emissions. So I turn off the Wi-Fi on my computer, the little Wi-Fi icon, and it's like I'm hardwired. Basically, that's wonderful to use on the computer. Then at school for my children, what I tell them is, oh, okay, I'm not able to um, remove Wi-Fi from the whole school. That's a whole other activism uh, work that needs to be done in a lot of schools in America. Um, but at least if I can't do that, you need to uh, watch your own safety. So they put their uh, Chromebooks that they provide at school on airplane mode when they write their essays and then they turn it back on when they need to do research on the internet and then turn it back off. Those are just little things that significantly reduce the overall exposure that one gets in a day. And I uh, I know we're um, short on time here, so I'll be fast. One more thing. Um, kids in schools, if they could turn off their phones, they can't enter their phone in the classroom anyway. So if they're, if they Parents and teachers could tell them and inform them that they should put their phone off or on airplane mode in the classroom because radiation is cumulative. It's basically like secondhand smoke. If everyone has a phone, then it's cumulative of the amount of radiation that is emitted.
And can you give us a minute, Sabine, on smart meters? Smart meters, just opt out and watch the film Take Back Your Power from Josh Del Sol. He really explains it well. Just opt out of it. They do sell some shielding products to shield um, a little bit from your neighbor's um, smart meter, but they're really, really bad for your health because they, 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 the, the peaks are like 20,000 over time uh, what the safe exposure limit is. And already that, safe, uh, that exposure standards from the FCC is already outdated, but those are terrible. They peak out so strongly. I have so many people who have headaches to, and, and, and health issues when they're installed on their home. And it's the same thing with alarms that are really uh, linked to your Wi-Fi, by the way. You don't need a, uh, an alarm linked to your Wi-Fi. That's and another. these smart meters, if people don't know, it's so that the electric companies don't have to have meter readers anymore. So exactly. it's something that's just constantly reading your um, electrical usage. Sabine, I am so grateful to you, so grateful to this wonderful film, Generation Zapped, Please, everybody watch it. Watch it today. GenerationZapped.com is the website. Generation Zapped the movie on uh, Facebook. Gen Zap Film on Twitter. And we will put all of these as well as the social media info for our previous guest with the end of meat on the show notes at MainStreetVegan.net. Thanks, everybody. God bless you. Eat your veggies. Thank you for listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. If you're inspired by the teachings of Dr. Wayne Dyer, you will love the Change Your Thoughts, Change Your Life podcast with Nadia Dela Cruz. You are a spiritual being having a human experience. My name is Nadia Dela Cruz, and I started the Change Your Thoughts, Change Your Life podcast to explore spiritual topics like manifestation and meditation with guests who share their own stories of insight, awakening, and transformation. Listen now on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network or wherever you get your podcasts.